So we're going from the open opposition of the king, where they reject his last witness in Judea, to now the preparation of the disciples by the king. They are being prepared specifically for the death and absence of Jesus Christ. So we'll start with a few lessons on humility uh, that he gives specifically to the Pharisees, but for the teaching of the disciples. And then uh, he will work on building the faith of the disciples, which will be important in the days that are ahead of them. So first, Jesus leaves Judea. We'll remember that the Feast of Dedication has just occurred. The Jews are out to get him. And so he moves beyond the Jordan, which is back into the land of Perea. That is where John the Baptist baptized uh, in preparation for Jesus. And many of those um, who were baptized by John are the ones who today, or at that time, followed Jesus. This baptism was a baptism in preparation for Christ. So it is no wonder why he went back there at the end of his ministry. We see that people recognize the connection as well. When he went back there, they said, well, John performed no signs, yet everything John said about this man was true. And so many believed in him there. The disciples, after Jesus and they left the land of Judea into Perea, the natural question arose, can anyone be saved? They just watched a mass rejection of Jesus in the very capital. They watched him forced out of the land because, the, uh, because of the bloodlust of the Jews. So naturally the question arises, can anyone be saved? And his response is simple, but it is a contradiction of Pharisaic theology. He says to strive to enter through the narrow door. This is not a narrow lifestyle. This is a narrow point of entrance. There is only one entrance, and he himself is that door. And Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is that narrow door. He has taught this on multiple occasions already. In act, or, um, previously in the book of John, he has said specifically that, that he is the door through which the sheep must enter. But he also warns that there is a day when the door shuts. This is not available for all time. In fact, for each man, it shuts at the time of physical death. If the Messiah is not received by any individual before they die physically, there is no more opportunity, as we will see later uh, in the parable, of, or not the parable, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. It's at this time that the Pharisees come up to him and uh, offer him what seems at first like an offer of friendship. They say, look out, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you because he's in Perea, the same location where John was ministering where Herod's murderous wife Herodias had him decapitated. So the Pharisees say, why don't you get out of Perea and come back to Judea? You'll be safe here. Jesus responds, go and tell that fox. Now this fox is in the feminine, which uh, would better be translated vixen. He's probably speaking of Herodias, the wife of Herod, 
who was the true mastermind behind John's murder. Go and tell that vixen, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Alluding to his resurrection on the third day, no one will be able to kill him. In fact, he specifically says that he is the prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. He will not die until it is God's time for him to be offered up as the sacrifice for the world. Interestingly enough, though, Jesus does attend another dinner party at the house of a Pharisee. You might wonder why he keeps doing this, but he does. Uh, when he gets there, it's quite obvious to him as well that this is no cordial invitation. It says that they are watching him carefully. It says that it was a Sabbath day, that they brought him there to eat bread, and that they also brought someone that would probably be very tempting for Jesus to heal. It was a man with dropsy, which we call edema today, or edema. Not sure how to pronounce that. It is an accumulation of liquid, and it's not often life-threatening. In fact, in this case, in the absence of the text saying it was life-threatening, we have to assume it wasn't. Which means that this illness would not have been permitted to be healed on the Sabbath under Pharisaic law. However, it is perfectly fine to heal this sort of disease on the Sabbath under Mosaic law. So rather than waiting for them to try to trap him, Jesus starts by asking them the question, is it permissible to heal on the Sabbath? Now the ball's in their court, they stay silent. They don't say anything. So Jesus heals the man. They don't say anything, but he tells them in their hypocrisy that they are willing to do acts of mercy for their animals, their oxen, which if they fall in a pit, they'll bring them back out on the Sabbath, even though once again, falling into a pit is not life-threatening. They'll also do the same for their sons. This is not life-threatening. But yet, when it is someone else, they call foul. They say, you can't do that. The law of the Pharisees is for the benefit of the Pharisees. They are able to point to their own self-righteousness while putting a heavy burden on others. And so Jesus heals this man and fulfills the purpose of the Sabbath, which is to give rest to Israel. This man had no rest from his illness until Jesus healed him. This was an act of mercy. This was not only permitted on the Sabbath, but this was commanded by the righteousness of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and the Pharisees were contradicting the law by the traditions of the elders. Now, after this incident with the man with dropsy, Jesus looks to the other guests at this party, and he tells them not to elevate themselves. He evidently witnessed them all coming into this dinner party, choosing the seats of honor, and he gives them a, a good lesson not to elevate themselves to the highest seats, to choose to be humble and then be promoted rather than to be prideful and then be demoted. He turns then to the host of the party, who was a ruler of the Pharisees, which means he was the head of a rabbinic school, similar to Nicodemus's level. And to the host, he tells them it's better not to invite guests who can also richly return the favor to him. 
in worldly and material wealth, but to those who cannot repay him. Because that has eternal rewards and not temporal rewards. He is teaching them the difference between what they trust in and what God values. But while he is saying this to the host, he says, you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In mentioning the resurrection of the righteous, especially in the context of a feast, it prompts one of the guests who I don't think at this point gets what Jesus is saying to say, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus essentially takes the opportunity to tell them, none of you at this point will be there. In order to tell them this, he offers them a parable. Remember, he is not at this point teaching clearly in public. He is teaching in veiled speech, primarily in parables. Then he will interpret that to his disciples, where we get an interpretation. That's his teaching to the disciples. But here he is evidently alone. And he offers them the parable of the rejected invitation. There is a man hosting a dinner party. We can identify him as God. He sends out a servant to invite the guests. The guests come up with various reasons that are all concerning their earthly goods, their pleasures, their business, their material possessions that keep them from coming to this celebration. When the servant returns to the host and tells him that everyone has rejected the invitation, he becomes angry, but he sends the servant out again, saying, offer this invitation to the weak and the sick. They accept his invitation, and the host sees that there is still room at the table. So he says, send them out into the highways and into the hedges, and bring in all who will come. This probably refers to the rejection that the Pharisees had instigated, that national rejection, the first invitation, which was for the kingdom. So the rejection was still offered then to the individuals in Israel on the basis of personal faith, and then it will later be extended to the Gentiles as well, those in the highways and hedges. There is plenty of room left at the table of the great feast, but many have refused the invitation. So Jesus is teaching them the consequences of their rejection of him. Only those who have received him as the Messiah will be at the great feast in the kingdom. Then he teaches his disciples something about discipleship. He says that men will have to hate their families, hate their mothers, hate their fathers, and love God. Now this is hate and love in the same sense as God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. This is not the hate of emotion or despising, but of choice. They will have to make a choice to choose God and to follow him, or else to choose their families and follow them. Now this might look a lot like hate, to reject your family and say, no, I'm not following you, I'm following Jesus Christ. This is the cost of discipleship not salvation. Salvation is free to all because Jesus paid it all. Discipleship may have worldly costs, but it has eternal rewards. And so even discipleship, though it is costly here on earth, and we have to be prepared for that worldly cost, these riches are dying anyways. These riches are already fading away. There is nothing eternal about them. And so what we give up, we are really gaining 
in heaven as a reward. So we're told that we might have to choose relationship with God, relationship in a spiritual sense over relationship in a physical and worldly sense. We're told to count the cost of discipleship. He uses the example, no one goes out and starts to build a tower without first making sure he has the means to build it. Just like a king doesn't go out to battle without making sure he has enough troops to overcome the other's army. At that point, he would go and make peace instead. Discipleship isn't a throw it all to the wind and hope God puts it all together. He is going to guide you. He is going to lead you. But you have to be careful to walk in God's will to make sure that he has provided for you the means to do that thing you are called to do. Counting the cost doesn't mean go and make the cost work. It means see what God has given you. What has God called you to do? God has not called all to build towers. God has not called all to go out like an army. Some he calls to a small and seemingly costless venture, and he supplies for that. He calls others to huge undertakings, huge sacrifices, and he supplies the means for that. You see what God has prepared, that cost that God has already provided the means of paying. Then he warns them to be salt that doesn't lose its flavor. The idea is being useful to God. Salt is useful for many different things. But when it loses its saltiness, when it goes bad, the only thing to do with it is to toss it out. Now keep in mind this is in the context of discipleship, not salvation. The believer will never be cast out. We saw that last week with the double eternal security of the believer in the grip of God the Father and in the grip of Jesus Christ the Son. But in the terms of a disciple, there is such a thing as a useless disciple. There is such a thing as a Christian who is just too worldly-minded to be any heavenly good. Now we'll see there's a lot of back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus' teaching. Obviously, they're following him pretty closely. They can overhear him, and Jesus is well aware that they can hear him. These tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. The idea here goes back to the heart of Phariseeism, that self-righteousness, the superiority of keeping the oral law being above those who do not keep the oral law. And the Pharisees even had doctrines that believed God rejoiced in the death of a sinner. God rejoiced in the destruction of an unbeliever. And God rejoiced to see his enemies put to death. Pharisees had laws against being a good example in the presence of a sinner in case that sinner would repent, walk away from his sins after he changed his mind about his sins, and so scorn God because he walked away from his sins rather than dying in his sins. This is contradictory to everything taught in Scripture. This really honestly did not bother the Pharisees. Most things that they taught were contradictory to God's word. So Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them God's heart for sinners. God does not glory in the death of a sinner. He uses three parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. This focuses on Jesus specifically. 
and his heart for the lost, that he goes out and he seeks, even when one walks away from the 99, he will go out and seek it. And he even poses this as a rhetorical question to the Pharisees. If you, as a shepherd, had a hundred sheep and one walked away, wouldn't you go and save the one? This is God's heart towards sinners. This is Jesus' ministry of seeking, finding, and restoring. And we find that God does not rejoice in the loss of a sinner, but rather when that sinner repents, that means changes his mind about who God is and his own self-righteousness and turns to God for God's righteousness. At that point, there is joy in heaven. Then he gives the parable of the lost coin. This speaks of the Holy Spirit's ministry and heart towards sinners, a ministry of searching, like a woman with a lamp scouring her home for a valuable coin that she has lost. And when it's restored, she calls all of her friends in and they celebrate that what was lost is now found. And it says, then there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. The last parable he offers is probably, I think, one of the most famous parables in all of the Gospels. That is the parable of the prodigal son. This rich man had two sons. The younger of the two said, give me my inheritance. He goes and he spends it poorly. He breaks fellowship with his father. He lives a life of debauchery. He is living in licentiousness. And he looks at his estate and says he could do much better as a servant. And so this uh, prodigal son who is eating slop with pigs says, even my father's servants eat better. It would be much better to return to his house and be like a servant. This has to do with service. This has to do with fellowship. But what he forgets is that he is a son. As a son, he is an heir. Just like there is no probation period for a Christian before he enters into his heirship with Christ, there is also no probationary period for one who is restored. Immediately, his, we see that his father was already watching for him when he arrived from afar off. His father ran to him joyfully, gave him a robe, a ring, and shoes, signifying his position with the father as a ruler, as an heir, as his son. And they celebrated by bringing a fatted calf. This pictures the restoration of a wayward believer, a believer who has gone far away from fellowship with God. But God rejoices in his restoration. And then we see that the older brother is upset because the younger brother is now getting all of these things from the father, even though he's already taken and spent his inheritance. And the father assures the older brother he's taking nothing from you. There is enough to go around. In fact, the father will give rewards liberally and still have plenty more to go around. Keep in mind, many don't accept the invitation anyways. He has enough for all and most won't take him up on the offer. And so the lesson to the older brother is to also rejoice in the restoration of a brother. This has application in the church. When we are in fellowship with one another and someone walks away, we might be resentful about that brother who walks away and then is restored into fellowship. 
This is not a spiritual way of assessing the situation. I've even heard it posed that some are upset that their brothers get to go off and live licentiously and then come back and it's all forgiven like nothing ever happened. What do they mean, get to go live licentiously? Paul asks what, since forgiveness abounds, should sin reign all the more? And he says, absolutely not. What insanity that would be. Why, after being saved, would you want to go eat slop with the pigs? And so Jesus has lots of wisdom then to teach on the difference between worldly goods and heavenly goods. He turns to the disciples and starts to give them specifically a parable, but he gives it in the hearing of the Pharisees. This is the parable of the unjust steward. This is the parable in which a manager of a businessman's accounts is told by the manager, you haven't been handling the money well, your days here are numbered. And so the man realizes that he's not good at any other jobs. He's too proud to go and beg. So he forgives the debts of some of these debtors. He forgives one 50%, he forgives another 20%. And then the master, rather than scolding him for forgiving debts that were owed to him, praises him for his shrewdness, praises him for making friends. I think we have to take this in the parabolic sense that Jesus is offering it. This is about the difference between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. And the master can rightly be seen as God. So the man used the earthly wealth, which in the text he calls wealth of unrighteousness. It says his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than to the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. This has an eternal context. This has the context of eternal rewards. This has the context of not valuing the unrighteous wealth that is one day going to fail, but instead building lasting and eternal relationships. And how is that done? But to use the wealth as a gift from God, not an indication of your righteousness, but an indication of his love and gifting in order to win souls for heaven. It says that they will be there to receive him in eternal dwellings. The only way you dwell together is if you're on the same side of the aisle. Using this money to make friends for a Christian is using this money, using any wealth to win friends for God. This is properly using those gifts and your position. Of course, when the Pharisees hear this, and I think this is why this is one of the most difficult parables that Jesus speaks, because the Pharisees were listening. And when they hear this, they don't look further than skin deep and say, that's lunacy. So they scoffed at Jesus. Jesus responds and helps us to interpret this parable. He says, seek to be justified before God and not before men. And then he tells them that the kingdom has been preached from the law and prophets until John. John ended the Old Testament 
system of law and prophets. All of that was meant to point towards Jesus. The prophets prophesied of the coming Messiah. Only the Messiah could fulfill the righteousness of the law. All of that, had they known the law and prophets, would have indicated that Jesus was the one and only way into the kingdom. But they rejected it and sought to enter in by a different way. And so Jesus assures them that the law will not pass away. He says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Now the Pharisees had basically done away with the entire law of Moses and replaced it with the traditions of men. Jesus is essentially saying, nice try. This will be fulfilled. And he and he alone is the fulfillment of it. And he gives them one example in the text, which uh, we're going to cover next week because he goes into greater detail about it. But he gives them one example of how they have changed the law to fit their own self-righteousness so that they can keep the law, even though the law is supposed to show them that they cannot keep the righteousness of the law. They remove the righteousness from it. And so Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, this is speaking to the Pharisees, and we have to take it in the context of the Pharisees of how the Pharisees were applying these laws in that day. The Pharisees were not applying this in the way that Moses had given permission, but never a command, but permission because of the hardness of Israel's heart to divorce it was always a tragedy. It was always a last resort. But yes, there were two uh, provisions under the law for a man to divorce his wife. The Pharisees had extended that to include everything even up to burning the soup or putting too much salt in the soup. Those were divorceable wrongs that the wife could do to the husband. So when we read this passage, we have to understand what exactly the Pharisees were saying was okay. Jesus is saying, no, that's not okay. Next week when we look at it, we'll see uh, his interpretation of divorce under the law, and then we'll also look at the uh, concept of divorce under the church age. Keep in mind, God never commands divorce. Restoration is always the idea, but because of the hardness of hearts, Sometimes divorce is permitted. Then Jesus goes on to teach against trusting in money. See, the Pharisees had this concept that wealth was an indication of divine favor. Those who were blessed with riches were that way because of their own righteousness. And so God would give them riches. On the other hand, they taught that those who were poor or those who were diseased, were poor and diseased because of their own personal sin. We saw Jesus teach against this with the man born blind. A parable is a fictional story that is used to support a deeper truth. And that deeper truth has to be identified for us either in context or explicitly. But this is a story. Never in a parable is a proper name ever given. Here, the man is identified as Lazarus. He has a name. This is not a parable. This has every mark of being a true story. 
We lump it sometimes into a parable because it speaks of realms unseen. Things sometimes are difficult to believe, but this is not difficult to understand what's going on here. This rich man has this beggar sitting outside his house named Lazarus. He's got sores and he's poor. The dogs come up and lick his sores, making him ceremonially unclean. And the rich man has no regard for Lazarus. He does not fulfill the law in loving his neighbor as himself. He's trusting in his own righteousness, not seeking to fulfill the law. But when they die, something contrary to Pharisaic doctrine happens. The rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. Now in the Jewish frame of reference, the underworld, which is called Sheol, has two sides. One side is hell or Hades. The other side is paradise or Abraham's bosom. Now paradise is wherever the souls of the righteous dead go. Today, paradise is in heaven. Abraham's bosom is that place in Sheol where before the cross, the souls of the righteous would go waiting for the day that the atonement was made. That is why when Jesus died on the cross and he went into Sheol, he went to paradise, Abraham's bosom, and preached to them that the atonement had been made. And then when he resurrected, he took them with him emptying out Abraham's bosom and locking the door behind him. He took the souls with him to heaven, and they are with him there today. And when someone dies today, they don't go to Abraham's bosom. They go to heaven. So this man, Lazarus, went to the paradise side of Sheol. The rich man goes to Hades. While they're there, we see that they can see across. They could even speak across the chasm. Not only are they conscious, they are not in soul sleep, but Lazarus and the rich man are aware of their lives beforehand as well. The rich man is conscious of his torment in Hades. He is conscious of missed opportunities in his life, and he is conscious of those still here who he knows are headed in the same direction. So he calls across the chasm to the paradise side to Abraham and tells Abraham to send Lazarus with just his finger dipped in water to relieve him of his pain. Abraham tells him the chasm between us is impassable. There is no opportunity once the door is shut to cross from one side or the other. The opportunity to choose Christ is in this life only. Those decisions are solidified in fit at the time of physical death. I think the rich man gets the point. His damnation is complete. But he remembers his father and his brothers. So he tells Abraham, could you send Lazarus back up there to the land of the living to warn my brothers, and my father. And Abraham's response is, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he, the rich man, said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
In other words, the sign of Jonah, that'll make them repent. Someone rising from the dead. Or Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. See, this is exactly the issue for the Pharisees. The sign of Jonah is quick on the heel, and they are going to miss it because they already reject the law and the prophets. So when they see it fulfilled, they will still reject it. When they see the power of a God, they have already rejected his word. They will also reject his signs. Jesus turns now to building the faith of his disciples. He tells them to beware of stumbling blocks. This in the context of Pharisees, he's telling them to be careful of false teaching. He's told them in the book of Matthew to look out for the leaven of the Pharisees. He also warns them not to be stumbling blocks themselves. But then he tells them to be willing to forgive even those deceivers when they repent, when they do away with their false doctrine. You know, this happened to the Apostle Paul, who was the Pharisee Paul. He was a persecutor of the believers in Messiah, and he repented. He was one who was a stumbling block. He repented of his sins, and the fellowship of believers received him, having learned from Jesus' teaching here. Jesus said, Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And once again, he teaches continual forgiveness. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. There is never an end to forgiveness. So the disciples at this point ask Jesus to increase their faith. The idea here might, might have been do something big to increase our faith. Jesus responds to them, if your faith is like a mustard seed. That is enough faith to do miraculous things. But then he tells them how they can grow their faith. His response is to be in service to God. Faith is exercised simply. It grows through obedience. When we are obedient to the revealed will of God, like a servant is to his master, our faith grows and we receive more responsibility. Faith is damaged, however, by false expectations. This is kind of the idea of the faith rest life, to know what is promised to the believer so that we can depend on those things, so that we don't have these false expectations, such as a slave who expects material payment. He says a slave, after working in the field, comes in and doesn't expect a meal from the master. He expects to serve the master's meal. He doesn't expect payment for his service. His service is what is expected from him. If you go about serving God in that manner, serving for the pleasure of serving God, not expecting him to pay you back for your wonderful service, this will build your faith. Now, this doesn't mean God won't reward the servant generously, but if it is given as a payment, it is no longer a reward. If it is given as a payment, it is no longer a gift. This will build faith to serve without expectation and to receive gifts as something unearned. While all of this is going on, Jesus receives word from some of his friends that he had made in Judea at one of the houses that the disciples had prepared for him 
as he uh, awaited his last days in Jerusalem, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary and Martha send him notice that Lazarus is on his deathbed. And Jesus takes the opportunity not only to build their faith, but also to provide Israel with its last sign before his own death and resurrection, the last sign that he would give publicly for the purpose of bringing them to faith. If you remember back in Matthew 12, when they asked for a sign after they rejected him, after his first messianic miracle, he said an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the ultimate sign of Jonah is Jesus. But there are two other bookends on this one sign of Jonah. One prefatory and one final. Lazarus is a preface to his own resurrection. When he gets to Bethany for the resurrection of Lazarus, no one believes he's able to do it. They all understand that there will be a resurrection on the last days, a much greater resurrection, a much, or a resurrection that takes much more power. This will be a resurrection into new bodies, not simply the restoration of one of these bodies. They believe that Jesus can do the greater thing, but they don't believe he can do the lesser thing. This is tripping them up a lot as well, not only because of their false expectations for the first advent of the Messiah, but also because they look at death as something completely out of God's control. And this is wrong. So the death of Lazarus occurs while Jesus is in Perea. And he waits specifically two days after he hears before he goes to Bethany. By the time Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. And Martha comes out to greet him with a railing accusation. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. She says, I know that. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Remember, he is doing miracles on the basis of faith. He is asking her if she believes. She responds to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ. In Hebrew, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into this world. The faith is there, though it is weak, but she is looking to the wrong source for this restoration. She is looking forward to the future resurrection that will be at the time of the messianic kingdom, or Martha calls Mary secretly, and uh, Mary brings with her a whole crowd of people. They had all come down to help them mourn for their brother. John specifically notes that Mary is the one who will anoint Jesus for his death. I think he's doing this in preparation because here she's going to get yet another lesson 
that she will learn from, that she will finally come to understand Jesus' program of death and resurrection. I think she already understands that Jesus will die, and I think this event helps her to understand that Jesus will rise again. So that when he does rise, she doesn't bother going to the tomb. She knows he's not there. It says it was this Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was sick. Now, Mary, when she sees Jesus, she comes up to him, and she also says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this is true, but it appears not to be in the same accusatory attitude as Martha had. Why? Because Mary falls at Jesus' feet and cries. She's not accusing him, she's mourning. And Jesus sees their wailing, and he's deeply moved in his spirit, and he is troubled. And so he asks, where have you laid him? And when they show it to him, Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in the English Bible. But this Jesus wept is also different than the weeping that we see Mary and that we see all the other Jews doing. The weeping that they are doing is loud tears, tears of despair and tears of mourning. Jesus are tears of love and sadness because of the pain of death. Jesus sees how much a cost death has on humanity and on his friends. And he is mourning with them, not the loss of Lazarus, Lazarus because he's not lost, but the pain that death has inflicted on mankind. Now, there are two responses among those watching this happen. When they see Jesus crying, some say, look how much he loved him. And others say, wait a minute. He loves this man, but isn't this the powerful Messiah who can heal blind people? Couldn't he have kept him from dying? We have hearts posed in two different directions. Some are sympathetic, fertile hearts ready for the gospel. Others are hard and rocky soil. Don't want to hear it. But once again, Jesus is deeply moved. He comes to the tomb, which was a cave with a stone lying against it. John is excellent at foreshadow. He is the only one to record this event as well. Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, being as the practical sister, says, but Jesus, he's dead. He stinks by now. It's been four days. In the Jewish frame of reference, they believed that a spirit could be resuscitated into a body up until the third day, but at that point, it would go down to the bosom of Abraham and could no longer be restored to the body. This is why they had such a difficult time believing that Jesus could perform this miracle. He had already resuscitated, by their sense of the word, two bodies. This would be the third resurrection. And they were resurrections, but in the Jewish frame of reference, this was the harder one to perform because the soul had already departed. So Jesus reminds her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He's got two things going on here. He's building the faith of believers. He's preparing them for his own death, but he's also offering the final sign to public Israel. They did remove the stone 
Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Mary said that, or Martha said that she knew that if Jesus prayed, that God would answer him. She was speaking in the context of Lazarus before death. That if he had shown up before Lazarus' death and he had prayed to God, God would have restored his health. But now it's too late. So Jesus raises his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He specifically says this, I knew that you were always with me, but because of the people standing around, I said it. He said it for Martha's benefit, for Mary's benefit, for the crowd of Jews, so that they may believe that you sent me. And then he tells Lazarus to come forth. And he does. He's still bound hand and foot. His face is covered with a cloth. It's a miracle that he found his way out of that tomb. So this was Jesus' second miracle in a row. Jesus told them to unbind him. And then there were two responses from the crowd. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. They received the first sign of Jonah. But then there were some that went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. They have this leadership complex in Israel. They are looking for the approval of the Pharisees. They are looking to the Pharisees for righteousness. So they go and tattle on Jesus, essentially. This sign gets officially rejected by the leadership of Israel. They were the ones who asked for Jesus to show a sign. Jesus told them what that sign would be, that it would be the last sign, that it was the sign of Jonah, and he explained what he meant by that. But here we see those who were told about this miracle, the chief priests, which are Sadducees, the Pharisees, and they convened a council, and this council is called the Sanhedrin. This is their official government. They were saying, what are we or what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. If we let this go on, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Once again, they're scared for their own worldly positions. Either we're going to lose our position to Jesus, or we're going to lose it to the Romans. Either way, we lose it. So how do we get around this? Caiaphas, the high priest that year, comes up with a great solution. Let's kill him. Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Kill him, save the nation. Ironically, as John points out, Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying and how true it was. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He would die for the nation of Israel. He would die for the individual Jews in the nation of Israel. And he would die for all the Gentiles as well. And so they officially set out a government, a national plot to put Jesus to death. This was the official rejection. And Jesus doesn't quite take it laying down. He sends one final huge witness to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest that year, which means he oversees the execution of Leviticus 14, the observation of a cleansed leper. 
When Jesus performed this miracle, it instigated the initial investigation of the Pharisees into Jesus' messianic claims. Now at the final sealing of the deal, Jesus sends them not one cleansed leper, but ten. The process of confirming the cleansing would take seven days. They would have to confirm that they were, at in fact, lepers. They would have to confirm over the course of the seven days that they were, in fact, healed. And they would need to confirm the manner by which they were healed. That Jesus Christ, once again, healed ten, or once again healed a leper, and this time he did it to ten. He sent this directly to the doorstep of Caiaphas, who rejected the last sign of Jonah, or the last sign of the Messiah, the sign of Jonah. And then the Pharisees come up and ask him, when is the kingdom coming? He answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, a kingdom of God is in your midst. Now remember when he talked about the signs of the times. These signs were in preparation for his first advent, not his second. The second coming of the Messiah is not coming with a thousand signs. It is coming like a thief in the night. They missed the coming of the kingdom to their generation. But he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, some translations say, the kingdom of God is within you. Remember, he is speaking to Pharisees. The kingdom of God is not in their hearts. In fact, the kingdom of God is not in anyone's hearts. It is not a spiritual entity. It is a physical kingdom. The kingdom will be established on this earth, not in the hearts of men. He is speaking to Pharisees, and so he is speaking in a veiled manner. And so he interprets this to his disciples. He gives them six specifics about his coming. Jesus interprets his answer to the Pharisees, and he says, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. There is going to be a time in which the Son of Man is not present before the kingdom will come. Many will say, look there and look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. This happened to the church of Thessalonica. This is why Paul had to write a letter to the Thessalonians telling them that the resurrection had not happened. They had not missed it. Someone came and told them, look here, look there. But the kingdom was not being established in Thessalonica's day. It was not being established in the Pharisees' day. It had been rejected. And so Jesus tells them, tells the disciples, that the kingdom will not be able to be missed. When it is here, there will be absolutely no doubt. Just like the lightning, when it flashes from one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. The kingdom will not come unto this gener until the generation of first century Israel has completed its rejection by completing the results of the rejection, which is the crucifixion of Christ. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He has been rejected. The ultimate suffering comes at the cross. This has to come before the kingdom. It will also come after a period of daily living, followed by a short period of intense judgment. Just like in Noah's day, when the flood caught them off guard, even though they had plenty of revelation, such as, the, such as Israel had the law and the prophets, such as we have the Law, the Prophets, and the New Testament, 
That is our sign for the coming of Christ, which can happen at any time for us. There are no signs of the times. There is only the eminent return of Jesus Christ. He can come at any moment, at absolutely any moment. He also reminds them that this will come at a time in which they have to flee Israel. This is from the Old Testament, from Daniel 9:27, When the false Messiah will enter into Jerusalem, they know that at that point they have to run. Now, interestingly enough, this will coincide with the third sign of Jonah. When the two witnesses are resurrected after three days in the city of Jerusalem, at the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, then the time of Jacob will begin the final three and a half years of the tribulation, and they are told to run, drop everything, and get out of Jerusalem. Go to Petra, to Basra. They are told to remember Lot's wife. Don't turn around. Don't stop. It is in that day that the kingdom of God is coming. It is also coming after a judgment of sifting. This is a judgment from God. We see that he divides surgically, not like a war in which the righteous and the just, or the righteous and the wicked fall together. This is one where God will take out the righteous and leave the wicked, just as he did with Noah. Those who are left will be caught up in the judgment of Jesus Christ when he returns to this earth. And then the disciples ask him a question. They say, where, Lord? Where is this happening? Where are you coming back? Where will the kingdom begin? He said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, this is not a parable. This uses Old Testament language to tell them that where the body of Israel is gathered and where the vultures or the Gentile nations are gathered against them in war, there the Son of Man will return. Now this leaves one option, because they had to flee Israel. They had to flee Jerusalem. Israel will not be gathered in Jerusalem in the last days. They will be gathered in Basra Petra. Micah 2.12 says, I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and its cities will become perpetual ruins. Jeremiah 49.14 tells us, I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy is sent among the nations, saying, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. This is the battle call for the nations to come against Israel in the last days. And then Jesus, not Israel, Jesus comes back and wins the war. They will gather themselves in the valley of Armageddon. They will sack Jerusalem and they will keep heading south into Jordan, modern day Petra. And it is at that place in what's called the tents of Judah, where they are laying outside of their city in temporary housing in Petra, that Jesus Christ will return and he will fight the battle. He will put an end to the false Messiah, the Antichrist. And so we have this passage in Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom, 
that is, Basra, with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. This is a picture of Jesus after he has returned to rescue Israel and Petra, making his way north towards the Mount of Olives, so he can ascend the Mount of Olives and establish the kingdom. And so finally, in light of this, Jesus tells them they have to pray and never give up. Because they've already been taught how to pray, they pray for God's will. And the first thing on God's list is his kingdom. Pray for the coming of his kingdom. Be like a persistent widow who refuses to let a judge let her case go. This judge doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about man. But because she's persistent, he answers. How much more then will a God who loves righteousness, who loves justice, and who loves man, who has a heart for sinners, how much more will he answer the prayer for the Lord's soon coming? And then he teaches, lastly, humility in prayer. He says the Pharisees, or there is a Pharisee, this is a parable. He says there is a Pharisee who goes into the temple to pray, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In the Mishnah, they pray that, or they pray thanks to God that they were not made women. They say, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes with all that I get. Look how righteous I am. But the tax collector, who they would call a sinner, he doesn't come near the Holy of Holies. He does not approach God. He doesn't lift his eyes up to heaven. He comes to God humbly, beating his breast, knowing his sin, knowing that he cannot fulfill the righteousness necessary to approach God. And so he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, this is not the usual word for mercy. This is the word for propitiation. He says, God, absorb the wrath that I can't bear. He knows his position. This should be the state of humility. He says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, we went about 10 minutes over, but uh, I hope that was worth it. Next week, we look at the final preparations in Jesus' entry into Judea, into Jerusalem for his final week. You can read Luke 18 through 20, John 12, Matthew 19 through 22, Mark 10 through 12. If you are doing the student manual, that is lessons 125 through 143.